guest. So glad you could join. We are now at CBS Sports. How about that? A brief history of this lovely podcast started in 2010. Indie Venture and SeanCarry.com, which still exists, by the way, if you want to get all the articles and podcasts and everything else that I do in one place. Uh, it's all there. Went on to Grantland. Was there for the duration of Grantland. May Grantland rest in peace. Went over to Nerdist Sports at the beginning of 2016. Thank you to Chris Hardwick and Frank Hado and Adam Reimer and Katie Levine and everybody else at Nerdist. And now we're at CBS. We are consolidating operations over here at CBS Sports where I do my writing, where I have the Jonah Carey Show every Friday. And yeah, the podcast lives here as well. It will run every Wednesday throughout the year. So yes, every Wednesday. And if you were a subscriber, well, you will see this episode zap onto your feed uh, because it's the same feed as before. Thanks to everyone for making that happen. And uh, yeah, Joseph Levin as well, uh, helping out on the CBS side, Sergio Gonzalez. And we are good to go. So yeah, every Wednesday throughout the year. And if you are new to the podcast, it's a little of everything. So I am a normally a baseball writer by trade, but I have lots of interests and I like to pursue those interests. So in the past, I've had chefs on and basketball players on and football players and hockey folks and general managers and coaches and actors and comedians and authors and what have you. So all kinds of different stuff. Had the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on. That was cool, too. So, yeah, you're going to get a variety of guests coming down the pike. But we are sticking with the bread and butter for the first episode under the CBS Sports banner. And that is with Jason Stark. Jason, a former colleague at ESPN and a great, great journalist. There's an argument about who the Mount Rushmore of baseball journalists should be in the modern era. I think Jason should be there. i got to be honest with you. Uh, Peter Gammons. We could discuss the rest, but I think those two uh, are pretty high esteem in terms of their accomplishments, in terms of the kind of people that they are. Jason is a wonderful, wonderful guy, really warm soul, and an accomplished baseball writer. So we talk about uh, lots of baseball stuff. He's such a great storyteller. We get into some stories. We did not go into great depth. Uh, I know that you are hankering to maybe hear a little bit about that, but I did not ask him extensively about... um, well, about ESPN.com basically going in a different direction with their baseball coverage and Jason now um, pursuing other stuff. Uh, but uh, suffice to say that he's got some irons in the fire and I feel very confident that things will be going uh, well in that direction in the near future. Uh, this was a Jason's request, by the way, to not get too far into it. And listen, I totally get it. And we had all kinds of great other topics on the agenda and i think you will enjoy it so yeah thank you so much uh some quick programming notes which we like to do every time as well uh before we get going at cbssports.com you will find my uh it's the jonah carey show which is normally every friday at uh 2 30 p.m eastern time is where you'll be able to pick it up this week we're going a little bit earlier we're doing some video vod's video on demand stuff uh with some travel in the mix and stuff but uh you can go to the cbs sports app or pretty much all ott devices by the way I tracked down the Jonah Carey show and various uh, iterations of me being on video and uh, check all that good stuff out. Thanks to Scott Riley for uh, his guidance constantly with that. As well, uh, Sportsnet, I've got some content up this week. You will also find the fun report at si.com. That's my monthly, uh, well, slice of fun, diving catches and bat flips and all kinds of cool stuff. So you'll see that. And uh, lots of other neat stuff. So yes, keep it locked right here. For the Joe and Carrie podcast every Wednesday now, and I think you'll dig it. And now we have a sponsor right off the bat, and it's Blue Apron. It's our friends at Blue Apron. Hi, Blue Apron. Nice to see you again. 
Blue Apron, number one fresh ingredient recipe delivery service in the country. They're great. I've talked about them extensively, again, in the previous iterations of this show. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. I am a doofus when it comes to cooking. I'm bad at it. But you know what? I was able to do it with Blue Apron. It's so easy to use. They send you everything in one pa- in one box, basically in individually marked packets that are precisely measured. So you want your protein. You want your grain, you want your spices. Everything is marked off exactly right. Instructions are super easy to follow. From the time that you pull everything out of the box to the time that's on your plate, a little less than an hour typically. It's great. It's awesome. I really, really am a fan of Blue Apron. Uh, Again, if I can manage it, then anybody can manage it. And we got some great upcoming meals coming up at Blue Apron. We got warm smoked trout and asparagus salad with fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons. Awesome. Spice zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice. Elote-style vegetable tostadas with summer squash, poblano peppers, and cilantro rice. And peach honey glazed chicken with mashed sweet potatoes, collard greens, and Thai basil. It's good stuff. I'm a fan. I dig it. And get this. You check out this week's menu. And then get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash jonah you will love how good it feels and taste to create incredible home cooked meals with blue apron so don't wait that's blueapron.com slash jonah to get your first three meals free with free shipping blue apron a better way to cook thank you to blue apron for sponsoring the inaugural edition of the jonah carey podcast at cbs sports and one more thing before we jump into the show my huge thanks to richard banks dick banks he is awesome. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Rich Banks Music is his Twitter handle. I have had the same podcast theme since 2010. That is a long time, friends. Seven years. I used to be a guest on the old Dave Damashek radio show when he would have a few kind of frequent guests. And they would have their own theme songs. And then when I started a podcast way back in the day, I said to Mr. Banks, this song is so good. Thank you so much for this. Do you mind if I keep it? And he said, no problem, because he's a wonderful guy as well as a creative artist. Go support everything that he does. Check out Rich Banks Music on Twitter. He has a SoundCloud account as well where he's got all kinds of cool theme songs. He does commercials. He does his own work. He does all kinds of neat stuff. He's great. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Dick. Thank you, Richard. All the formats of Mr. Banks. And here we go. It is the first episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast under the CBS Sports banner. And it is with my friend and the great Jason Stark. Enjoy. It's massively appropriate, uh, Jason Stark, that I'm talking to you uh, kind of in the cradle of Philadelphia, I guess. <laughs> Real historical, got the cobblestones outside, that's cool. You gotta have cobblestones, man, that's what Philadelphia's all about, the Mon- cobblestones. Montreal has cobblestones, but most American cities feel new, you know? Right. Philly has that, that, that historical term, there's when, a little bit of... When my son was born, um, in order to get the labor moving along a little faster, we actually... Drove over the <laughs> to see if that would work. I don't recommend it. Didn't work for me. I know that. <laughs> Which doctor would have been? Oh, yeah, this, this is definitely the truth. Yeah, you won't find that in the baby advice section. Um, coming up in Philly, did you... Was this your, your lifestyle? Bishop, people have asked me that question about sports writing, and, and I pretty much, my pat answer to them is, I was a very tall kid. Bar Mitzvah was six feet tall, pretty tall for 13. Uh, but I realized, well, A, that's not that tall, and B, I wasn't that good a basketball player. So I was not actually going to play in the NBA. And so from that point on, I wanted to be a sports writer. Did you have that same sort of lifelong ambition? I did. You know, okay. I tell people all the time that I've been living a dream. 
and I'm not sure how this exactly happened to me, Yeah. but this is what I wanted to do from the time I was like 10 years old. Wow. And I, I wrote about this in my Wild Pitches book, but yeah. I have hanging on the wall of my office, uh, it's framed, uh, it, there's a photo of, my, of me and my sister walking home from school, I'm 10, she's probably 9, she might have been 8 and 3 quarters, whatever, mm -hmm. and underneath it is a little composition that she wrote for her class in 4th grade about her brother, and in it it says, if you ever want to know anything about baseball, you should ask my brother. Wow. And I look at this every once in a while, and I think to myself, oh my God, <laughs> this life that I dreamed of actually happened. Wow. You know, my mom was a writer, um, and she had, she worked um, for a little while for a newspaper in Philadelphia, so she had a bunch of newspaper friends. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that's where I got some some of the fever to, to, to do that. Yeah. But I, this is the honest to God truth, John. I would go to games as a little kid, bring my binoculars, and I turn, I wouldn't train those binoculars on the field. I would turn around, look at the press box, and try to figure out what the heck everybody was doing up there. Wow. This is a true story. It's, it's just crazy that, like, my life unfolded in a way that I got to live just what I envisioned. This is like the book of the secret. If you if you envision, it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I hope. Um, did you have? Everybody has a kind of like childhood, like accoutrement. So let's say you're a big baseball fan. So you go to games. That's a given. You watch games. Sure. Were you a Stratomatic person? Were you an APBA person? Did you collect baseball cards? What was I, it that you I, did in addition? I, I did collect baseball cards, yeah. but I made a lot of scrapbooks. Oh, scrapbooks! You know, and, and uh, my <laughs> they're my kind of my own version of. Phillies yearbooks, mm -hmm. um, Phillies magazines. I had a little newspaper that I peddled to my neighbors. I, I, they probably paid for more issues than they got. <laughs> but, like, that was me. I needed to express it. I needed to, to, to follow it, to, make, to keep track of all the numbers. I made up a little scoreboard. Oh. I made my own scoreboard, so when I would watch a game on TV, I'd keep the scoreboard up to date. That was me. It's pretty geeky when you think back on it. Uh, did you, one thing that I started doing once I got a library card, I started going and looking at the old, old stuff. I started reading Ring Lardner and stuff like that. Uh, am I the only maniac who did this? No, my mom made sure that I oh, read is that right? Ring Lardner, yeah. Cool. You know me, Al. You know me, Al, right? Yes. And, and which is not, uh, beat writing or anything like that, but it's about the lyrical nature of baseball and, and stories and, and the, the lore of it and all that stuff. Yeah, th there's something... The romance of baseball and all this stuff. It's been told before, but I was I was I was seduced by it and I actually grew up playing basketball. I really liked basketball, but I never found myself reading as many amazing things about basketball. Breaks of the game, something like that, the Halberstam book, like that's a class, you know, I was seventy nine, so by the time I read it that had been out for a few years, I was a teenager, I guess. But just you go back, there's so many old baseball books. The glory of their times. You know, there's these Roger Angel, these seminal works that exist in this sport that I feel like don't in other sports, and that can seduce you as a writer, about a wannabe writer, to say, oh, wow, what if I could be one one-hundredth as good as Roger Angel? Is that even possible? <laughs> to be one one-hundredth as good? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. To be one hundred one-hundredths as good? Zero percent, Can't yes. be done. No. Let's see, I, I grew up in one of the great sports writing towns in America yeah. at a time when Philadelphia sports writing was at its 
greatest. And, um, you know, I, I learned so much just from about writing sports, from reading great sports writers. Mm -hmm. You know, I devoured Stan Hockman. Yeah. I devoured Bill Conlon. And, uh, you know, there's gr great columnists at the Inquirer. Like Sandy Padway was a legend. Nobody mm -hmm. remembers him. Sandy Grady at the Bulletin was incredible. Yeah. Incredible wordsmith. And so I would, re I would read the way it was done and say to myself, you can do things when you write about sports that you can't do when you write about anything else. Um, you could write comedy. You know, stuff would happen, and their entire piece the next day would be comedy. It would be them cracking funny lines, quoting players or whoever, saying funny things. You might have seen this show up in my work, <laughs> right? From time to time. Yeah. I love that. Plus, like, I would write to these guys, and Stan Hockman would actually write back to me. At, like, 12 or whatever? I'm probably a little older than that, yeah. but uh, I was a teenager, yeah. and I was getting interested in this. I was the, the sports editor of my high school paper. Okay. And, um, you know, so I, went, I had questions about sports writing, and, you know, like, some guys would ignore them. But Stan was one of the people who would always write back, and he was so entertaining and insightful. Like, these are the things that really left a mark on me. Hmm. Is there something about, you know, there's the portrayal of the Philly sports fan as being rough around the edges and so forth. Is there a Philly brand of sports writing? Like, if you were to go back and read McDonough and Ryan and Gammons 40 years ago, yeah. is that a totally different strain of sports journalism than the Hawkman and Conlon type I, of sports journalism? I think it is. Yeah. Um, now, I, I would say Philadelphia sports writing tends to be very irreverent. Okay. And, and that's a good thing. Of course it is. And, you know, one of the things that broke out in, in Philadelphia sports writing, you know, back in the day, whatever, 34 years ago, was the idea that you could tackle big mm -hmm. issues through the prism of sports. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know about politics. Politics has always been tricky when you try to infuse it with sports. Yeah. But... Um, life. You know, a lot of stuff happens in sports that really we're interested in because we're human beings. Yeah. And those kinds of pieces really got my attention too. And it, it, you know, I, I really do think these are the things that attracted me to sports writing is it's not just about sports. Right. It can be about anything you want it to be if you view it through the right lens. Did you have a guy growing up? You know, obviously, I have Tim Raines. I think that story's been told a couple of times. But uh, did you, was there one player that stood out for you? I mean, I would say Dick Allen I was, was going to say. first big yeah. player that I can remember just being a huge fan of. He's a badass. The cover of Sports I, Illustrated, right? Yeah, seriously. So, with the cigarette dangling and the juggling. <laughs> I know. Ooh, but, just, I yeah. mean, like, the thing about Dick Allen is... You know, he would hit baseballs where nobody else hit him, where you didn't think baseballs could ever be hit. Yeah. And Especially in that era when there wasn't much offense. You know, late 60s, early 70s, there's not. There was a stat cast then, too. You know, yeah, we, right. we didn't know. <laughs> the exit velocity. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I, in my travels, when I eventually went to work as a sports writer in Philadelphia, yeah. I met a guy, maybe you know him, maybe you don't, named Bill Jenkinson. Bill Jenkinson, mm -hmm. before there was the tail of the tape and before there yeah. was the ESPN home run tracker, before there was StatCast, 
he was the foremost authority on long distance home runs. And so he too had a thing about Dick Allen home runs. And he had gone to the site of County Max Stadium, Shy Park, and he, you know, he had all the historical accounts of where these balls landed. And he had walked them off and he knew exactly how long they were. Now he he, he did this with all the great Mickey Mantle homers, the mm -hmm. Babe Ruth homers. Like if you know, you heard a story that you know Babe Ruth hit a ball and it left the park and hopped down the street and it landed in somebody's flower beds. You know, <laughs> he would go find the flower bed, try to figure out how far that that was away yeah. from home plate in Griffith Stadium or wherever the heck it sure. was hit. So he was a really interesting guy, but he you know he, he had so many stories of these great Dick Allen homers, and he could assure me that like we weren't. This wasn't just us conjuring up legends in retrospect. This was, a, this was a guy who hit home runs that would rank among the, you know, the five or ten greatest long-distance long home run hitters of all time. So that explained that attraction that kids had to watching Dick Allen. But then, you know, the whole other side of it was how Dick Allen got run out of town. Right. And all the stuff that always swirled around him. And, I mean, I can't say that I understood that. Right. Um, but... It was it was so sad that that's how it ended for this guy. Well, and, and I've always wondered, and maybe this is only after the fact that we could study it. As you said, you were young then, but on Allen specifically, I just never knew how much of that stuff was true or not. First of all, there's the color of his skin, and it was 50 years ago. I'm not saying Philly is better or worse than any other city. It's just that, that it happens. And he is bombastic and, and loud and whatever. I mean, the, the comparison that I've been told is there was a little bit of Albert Bell in him, that he just kind of didn't give an F, you know? He's just, I'm going to hit the home runs, I'm going to do whatever, and I don't really care. And obviously Albert Bell had his share of detractors too, so does that, again, they, in retrospect... They would boo the guy, and he would write boo in the dirt. That's so good, though. Right? <laughs> I would love that. It's like a wrestling heel. Yeah. Yeah. The... the, the the villain that you love to love, or the hero that you love to hate, or whatever he was. I mean, you're talking to the guy who really likes Barry Bond, so I, I don't know. But, <laughs> but uh, right, we're gonna have to get to that. But well, we yeah. I do want to get to that. Um, what was your first uh, paid gig? My first paid gig, I actually covered suburban news for the Providence Journal. Wow! For a period of time. What year? Here. This would have been seventy-three, forty. So, so that's like city council. I was covered. Little, I covered suburban. Rhode Island. I yeah. covered a couple little towns. Uh, I covered a, a town called Tiverton, Rhode Island, where mm -hmm. all kinds of wacky stuff would happen, and I found it you know, quite entertaining. <laughs> they weren't always that entertained by how entertaining I thought it, <laughs> it was. Like when the, you know, they, the, the, there, there was going to be a topless rock band play in town, and they decided they were going to stop the band from playing, and it became a huge story, all because of me, and when the, when the band showed up to play, this was not just covered by all three you know, local TV uh -huh. news operations. The anchors came. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> this is big stuff. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that I found to amuse myself. But covering suburban news is, n is never um, as much fun as covering any aspect of sports you could ever 
cover in your life, write about in your life. So I knew really quickly that wasn't what I wanted to do in my life. My first uh, paid gigs were covering suburban news in Montreal and then covering right, suburban right. news in Reston, Virginia. Uh-huh. And, and what, what are your memories of that? Reston, Virginia, as my wife can attest, involved a lot of 2 a.m. council meetings on a Tuesday. Yeah, they do. And it was the most engaged. That particular town is a planned community. Reston is named after this guy, Robert E. Simon Reston. And clearly, you know, like it, they attracted business. Oracle went there, and Nextel, and all these companies that were big in the '90s or whatever. Uh, but it was just you couldn't paint your door a splash of red without it being an apocalypse because it was a planned community. And so people were so engaged that they went over there and they said, "Listen, this is not right. This splash of red is no good." And it teaches you about um, you know engagement and about. A place of pride and all this stuff. I mean, I thought these people were whack jobs, but uh, <laughs> yeah. But I was just, I was struck by this because I guess it was just more laissez-faire. Where I grew up wasn't just a generic Montreal suburb, and here in this town of Reston, I was like, wow, you really care. And I am very attracted to people who care. About, I I like somebody who cares about things. It could be that they care about their baseball writing. It could be they care about their dog. But if you have a passion for something, I'm like, tell me more. Why are you so passionate? Oh, I agree with that. So that sort of came out of that. So it was an interesting formative experience, I suppose. Well, well sure. I mean, you, you learn to do a lot of stuff yeah. when you cover news that comes in handy when you cover sports. And I, I'm not going to say it wasn't valuable. It just wasn't as much fun. Right. And I, look, I could go to a school board meeting and I could stay awake for two and a half hours, and I could, you know, I could when something was said that I knew was newsworthy. Yeah. I could, I could find it, follow up, write it. Um, I would go to the police station two or three times a week, comb through the police reports, find some stuff, a little shorts, you know, that would, little newsy stuff that people were interested. In. I could do that. I could go to court. I could go to the planning board. Mm-hmm. You know, we go to the planning board and sit there and realize that nothing. Of, of value was coming out of this, but I had to write something, and then I would look at the circulation chart and realize that we had like five people in that town that whatever, subscribed, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I could do it, and I was interested in it, Yeah. but I, I mean, aren't we doing this because we're looking for something really fun to yeah. do? And that's what I was looking for. Otherwise, we'd try more lucrative professions. <laughs> <laughs> Lawyer, I don't know. Yeah, right. What was the first sports gig that you had? Uh, I was looking for a way out of the, the news, the suburban news gig, mm-hmm. and there was an opening at, at, in the Providence Journal for a sports writer that I applied for, mm-hmm. and miraculously, they hired me. So I just, I did that for a while, just whatever they asked me to do, I did. I, I covered Red Sox, and I covered... A lot of college sports, and I covered a lot of high school sports, and I wrote husband-wife golf tournaments, and I went to archery tournaments. I, wow. It's incredible the stuff that I did. But, again, just all, you know, it, it all kind of goes into making you who you are and what you are. Yeah. Those Red Sox teams in the 70s, those some entertaining teams over there. I, I did Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, that's Freddie cool. Lynn, and I mean, there's some good, Jim Rice, there's some good players. Right. Now, I mean, I wasn't the beat guy, but yeah. I got to do enough of it that yeah. I knew this was something I'd love to do. That's that's how I knew I wanted to be a baseball writer, from just getting the chance to cover my 10 games a year or whatever it wound up being. That's fantastic. So when did the finally, okay, you're a baseball beat writer, what was your first I got hired by the Philadelphia Inquirer to cover the Phillies. What year? I'm 79. Wow, that's good timing. It was good timing. Pete <laughs> Rose and I arrived at the same time, right? Wow. And uh, it was just 
Now, I mean, the, the only downside was they had this incredible run from yeah. 1976 to 1983. That was the one year that they weren't any good. Yeah. Um, Expos and Pirates were good that year. They were. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, they were. And so there was a lot of turmoil that year yeah. where, you know, the manager, Danny Ozark, got fired and there were three young guys on the beat. Um, I was one of them. Mark Wicker was one. Mark Wicker, wow. Uh, you know, great columnist in L.A. Sure. Jim Collier's great columnist in Pittsburgh was the third. Yeah. And so it was us. And then the, the veteran scribes. And you know, it, it, was, it was a stormy time <laughs> to cover a baseball team. Yeah. That, that thought of itself as, like, I mean, if you think about the way the, the Yankees think of themselves, the Cardinals think mm-hmm. of themselves, uh, you know, the great franchises, yeah. the great core groups know how good they are. Mm-hmm. And now imagine, all right, now a bunch of young writers come in and you finish fourth and everything goes wrong. And so they've never seen you be great. They've never written about you being great. Mm-hmm. They're just writing about how the whole season is unraveling. It was tough. Hmm. It was very, it, I mean, I wouldn't say we were welcomed <laughs> with open arms, that's sure. for sure. Does that work to your advantage? Is that sort of like, all right, I've been through the ringer? Because I've never been a beat writer. And, and I, to me, it would be intimidating to come into the clubhouse on day one and just say, okay, I don't know, forget about the bullpen guys, I don't know the number one starter, I don't know the cleanup hitter, I don't know the manager, I have to introduce myself, I have to figure out the customs of it. Right. You know, I, I just remember the first time I ever went into a locker room, however many years ago that was, and I thought, well, these people are coming out of the shower and I'm in their face. Like, I, I still, you know, I know that it's part of our negotiated rights with BBWA and it's necessary for reporting and so forth, but it's a little bit different than other sports. You know, it's, it's longer, it's, it's more, there's kind of an ebb and flow to it. So what's your strategy when you're walking in for the first time and saying, I got to establish myself? How do you make that happen? Well, I mean, I, I was fine with walking up to people and saying hello, okay. introducing myself, and making conversation. I can do that. Yeah. Um, what was difficult was not realizing how much some of those people wanted to test me. Hmm. You know, and I've heard that. Trent Percival does sometimes that. Sometimes yell at me, <laughs> <laughs> right? And uh, it really toughened me up. Now, I mean, I had been a big Philly sports fan mm-hmm. until I went to work in Philadelphia covering the Phillies because that changes you. Yes. I mean, people don't understand this. They don't understand it about me even now that yeah. I'm not a Phillies fan, even though I may be writing about the Phillies winning the World Series mm-hmm. or whatever, they, whatever they're doing. Um, but I understand how Phillies fans think. But there's a big distinction. I'm not... Now, I'm not, th- I'm not there rooting. I don't lose any sleep if they win or lose. Yeah. It's not what you do. Um, you have to think about your responsibility to tell the stories in a whole different way. So, um, as I said, it really toughened me up to have players at times be hostile. I would yeah. Say, you know, players I, that you knew by name and by reputation, and you watched them and all that. Yeah, you write something, yeah. they didn't like it, you heard about it. Um, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that happened, even... I mean, they won the World Series in 1980. It was yeah. all, that was a, I mean, the, the stuff that happened that year between the media and the, and the team. What went down? What was it? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a really long story, but yeah. in general, there was a, a story that broke in the middle of that season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't come from any of us. It came from a news-sized reporter uh, um, that 
it, it was a basically a, an amphetamine scandal. Yes. Involving the Reading Phillies team doctor that named a bunch of huge stars. But didn't Phillies. everybody use greenies though? Like, was it? Yeah, but it, the, I mean, I, I don't remember it, all the specifics yeah. of the story. But basically, the doctor was accused of writing prescriptions illegally to Pete Rose, Mike Schmidt, right. Larry Boa. I mean, it was big names. Yeah. Right? And so. Um, we didn't report that story, but then it became a big deal. And the reaction of many players in that team was to say, well, we ain't talking to any of you guys. Right. And That happens even now. It does. But Somebody in the media pisses them off, I'll be here that. It happened. Like, Toronto happened last year, right? Yes. Where a bunch of players were not talking. Well, we had at least half the clubhouse was not talking to us at any point. Wow. For a long period Nothing of time. Nothing to do with you, any of this stuff. No, but then stuff happened along the way. I, I mean, I had a really famous desk up with Gary, with Gary Maddox. He's a wonderful guy, you know. We Two thirds of the world him. covered by yeah. water. Or but, by Gary Maddox. you know, it just uh, it wound up being written about in a couple of books, actually, where I'm going to try to, I don't know if I can try to tell this story quickly. Sure, yeah, we'll um, take some time. All right. Uh, this, the Phillies didn't exactly, you know, cruise through that year. They were actually. I think seven games back in August of the Once again, Pirates. Once again, the Expos contended that year. Expos and Pirates, right. Yeah. The Pirates had won the year before. Yes. The Pirates swept them in a doubleheader in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. in August. Dallas Green was the manager. Yep. Dallas uh, screamed at them so loud that we were actually able to record it outside the clubhouse word for word and then report what he said. Wow. It, he basically challenged them, and it, was, it became a war. Dallas... Versus the players with us in the middle of it, mm-hmm. and this was the dynamic. So now they, they, from that moment on, they started to play a lot better. They got hot. They got mm-hmm. themselves back in the race. Now, on a Sunday afternoon in San Diego, Gary Maddox loses a fly ball in the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lose a game. <clears throat> it becomes a huge deal. Uh, where the general manager goes to the clubhouse afterwards and throws an incredible tantrum and. Dallas Green throws an incredible tantrum, and I had some dumb line about Gary Maddox, but I, I don't remember exactly what that was. But now, okay, fast forward, there's just over a week left in the season. Your Montreal Expos come to Philadelphia. Big Phillies and Expos are fighting for first place, mm-hmm. and they get down to the Sunday afternoon game, and whoever wins that game will be in first place and in charge of the race going into the final week of the mm-hmm. season, but whoever loses that game is in big trouble. It's a late afternoon start for TV, and the, the key play in the game is Gary Maddox losing a fly ball in the sun, not wearing sunglasses. Oh, wow. And, you know, in Veteran Stadium, there were a lot of times when the sun wasn't a factor, but the sun was peering right, like right through the mm-hmm. concourse. So, at any rate, after this game, you know, more clubhouse fury and all that. And I had a line buried way down in the story of talking about this, mentioning the plan in San Diego and saying, nobody's had this much trouble with the sun since Icarus. <laughs> Pretty good line, right? Miracle. <laughs> he didn't think so. <laughs> Gary Maddox did not think so. Yeah, so he was a student of the classics. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm impressed that he knew who Icarus was. Absolutely. Very, very, very bright, cerebral guy. Sure. Didn't help me at all. Um, so the next day, Clubhouse opens in the afternoon, walk in, and immediately I get a tap on the shoulder from Gary Maddox. And he says, come with me. 
So he's not I mean, a small guy. Not a small guy. Yeah. And there's not nothing about this could be good, right? No. So we we wind our way off these little highways and byways off the clubhouse, and he sees a, a broom closet, equipment closet, something. <laughs> and he goes in there, go in. I go in. He goes in. He slams the door, and now I hear about it. Yeah. Uh, and he was mad. Good for him, though, for taking you away from everybody else, I have to say. Right. And I just, like, what he did was the way it should be handled. He was really mad, though. And not just about that line, although it came up. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it it all spilled out that it was us and the manager aligned against them. That's how they thought. Uh. So he said to me, have you seen the lineup tonight? And I said, I just walked in the clubhouse. And he said, well, I'm not in it, and you're the reason. I said, wait, I'm the reason? And he said, yeah, you're the reason. Our manager, he manages to please you guys. Wow. I said, Gary, you can think whatever you want about me, but I guarantee you, Dallas Green did not consult me before he made out that line. Mm. And so... You're a kid still. You're like 27. Yeah, right. So so now we, we get through this. And we come out, yeah. and everybody saw it. Yeah. It's the last week of the season. It's huge, this is huge stuff, right? This is, it's Philadelphia. There's massive amounts of media oh, yeah. in the clubhouse. They all saw me leave. And I said, look, it was no big deal. He, uh, he wasn't happy about the story. He wasn't happy about being benched. He said what he had to say. I understand it. It was fine. It was not a big deal. Mm. Here was the problem. Larry Boa had a pre-game radio show at the time. And he went on his pre-game radio show and ripped the manager for Ben. He benched, try try to remember this now, he benched Gary Maddox, he benched Bob Boone, and he benched Greg Lazinski. There's a week to go. In this game. There's a week to go in the season. They they have to win out. They basically have to win every game. And he benched three guys who were pillars of that team. And so this was a huge issue in that clubhouse, obviously. So now... You know, my fellow Philly sports writers are looking at this thinking, ooh, Philly's in turmoil. <laughs> right? So It's true. You know, so the, the AP writer wrote a story about it that basically said Philly's in turmoil and mentioned me. So now all these sports editors are sitting back in their office and they read about it. Jason Stark in front of Gary Maddox and all these writers are coming up to me saying, hey, I got to get a comment from you. I got to get this. Yeah. So now this thing starts Your to... Your colleagues. This thing starts to get bigger. Yeah. This is an incredible baseball game. Too. It's like, no, it's a long story. I'm sorry. No, no. It's, this, this is, is exactly what I want. This is a must-win game. Yeah. Right? It yeah. goes 15 innings. Wow. They fall behind in the top of the 15th by two. Yeah. Have to win now. Yeah. Score three in the bottom of the 15th to win... Who comes off the bench and gets a huge hit? But Gary, Alex, of course. <laughs> All right, now we get out of the clubhouse afterwards. What a great story. Dallas is not happy. Like, you'd think this is the biggest one of the year. Dallas would be ecstatic. Yeah. No, he's pacing back and forth, and he says, this is, this is true now. He says, there are guys on this team who don't care if we win. It's just about them. They need to look in the blankety-blank mirror. And... He's referring to the, all the guys who were so ticked off about their spot in the lineup yeah. that that became bigger to them than winning. And so now the Phillies in turmoil angle erupts even louder and mm-hmm. larger than it was before. 
And so what started out is like basically a private moment, just a you know a guy trying to handle uh, at something he wasn't happy yep. with privately, becomes public knowledge all over America. Mm-hmm. And so the next day, he really, really wasn't happy. And from from that point on, his teammates, his buddies, basically every day somebody would try to single me out and confront me about something, all kinds of goofy stuff, uh-huh. some of it like my accounts of a certain play, the way I phrased the line, the way I used parentheses, all that like didn't matter. It all came up. <laughs> and it was crazy. It like Joni, you know me. You're a nice dude. I'm a nice guy. Yeah. I never set out to be that guy. No. But it toughened me up yeah. to go through this stuff. And so I mean I like I then had to go on and cover Gary Maddox and cover that team. They covered Dallas Green. Uh, Dallas and I had our we had a huge thing too that he's an ornery was an ornery guy. I love Dallas. Yeah. I mean one of the most amazing people I ever covered. But there was a four and a half minute tirade one day that began bleep you Jason and it's legendary, right? Wow. And we we laughed about it forever the day he died. <laughs> yeah. So anyway it was an interesting experience. Wow. Is my point. Well and it just that's a different era. You know, I I'm yeah. imagining a scenario where the Cubs are a week away and they're playing the Cardinals and they have to win this game. And Theo Epstein and Joe Madden come in and go, you guys are a bunch of MFers. And th- There's no scenario. <laughs> are you kidding no. me? The, no way. The, the, the Dallas Green style of confrontation yeah. in that job. Long gone. Not happening. Not happening. And yet, you know, it's, it's, like it's a testament to what a great man Dallas Green mm-hmm. was that when he passed away recently, just this spring, yeah, right. um, Larry Bowe was in tears. Mm. And they had... I mean, they had gone at it like you wouldn't believe. I once wrote a piece where Larry Bowe took me aside and he said, I want you to write this. What's Dallas Green ever won? <laughs> what? This is the kind of thing that went on every day there. What's funny is, if I try to think of who the last manager is that I can remember who was really like that, it might be Larry Bowe. Might be. Yeah. Which is funny that he was so ticked off at Green's style and he's like, I'm going to be the exact same <laughs> guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he used to... There used to be a lot of managers in that style. You know, well, I mean, Earl Weaver is one of the greatest managers of all time in any sports, coaches, whatever, and he was right. like that, but also a genius. So yeah, come a long way. Yeah, well, and and just I guess that's a broader question about sports too, or a statement. I don't know that that um, you know Bobby Knight, whatever. It's just getting the most out of athletes. We don't. I'm not sure if it's because as a empirically tested thesis this is why people manage this way, or if it's because players would just laugh at you if you tried to be that way, but there is no sport where you can really do that anymore. Hockey, I mean, it's getting a little close to hockey because it's still pretty old-fashioned. Yeah, football coaches aren't that way. Some Coughlin. Coughlin is. College, definitely. College. Because college, it's a balance of power thing because they're kids. But in the pros... The, the, the athletes hold the cards. They... Yeah, you know, Belichick is, is, is grumpy, but he doesn't chew out Brady or the backup linebacker. I, I don't know. It wouldn't be that, if that's your point. It yeah, was, you know what I'm... would never see that. Right, I'm wondering if it's really because they've determined that objectively this is the best way to manage it, you can do better with a carrot than a stick, or if it's because it would just never fly, the media would nail you, the players would laugh at you, and you just couldn't get the clubhouse. I don't know. What do you think? I, I'm with you. I don't think you could do that anymore yeah. and have it work. 
I guess anything is possible. You know, hard love is is a thing. I think that managers still employ it, need to employ it. Mm. Um, and there are times when you just have to step in yeah. and make sure that the, the inmates are not running this asylum, man. Right. You know, like I, I mean, as long as we're on the Philadelphia theme, yeah. Charlie Manuel gave a lot of that tough love. Mm. And that was not long ago, actually. Yeah. No, right. And I mean, even with a, with a great team, right? They won the World Series in 2008. And even that year, he benched Jimmy Rollins. Yeah. Remember, and then as he went along, I mean, his feeling was that the players were getting a little too comfortable. Mm. And there were times you had to address it. And he, you know, if you, the difference is, like the manager now would get to know the player at, a, at such an, uh, a personal level that he can do that and they don't hate each other right. because of it. That's the difference. You know, the, that, you know, I mean, Dallas Green, back in his heyday, didn't care who was mad at him. And that was true in Philadelphia, it was true in Chicago, it was true in, with the Mets, it was true with the Yankees. Hmm. Didn't care. Yeah, boy, it's just such an interesting that era. <laughs> so, um, at what point did you transition from uh, Philly sports exclusively to national to ESPN? Well, I, I mean, I, you know, after, I covered the Phillies as the beat writer for four years. Yeah, I, be, I became a baseball columnist slash national right. baseball writer, and wrote a, you know, wrote a column that was known as Baseball Week in Review. Mm-hmm. And maybe perhaps you saw it somewhere along the line. I it was, sure did. It <laughs> was full of wacky stuff. And I would take the crazy stuff that happened in baseball that week and have a blast making it entertaining. Which was different than the kind of the typical Sunday column. It was column. totally different. Yeah. Right. Gammons would have like a notes column. It'd be about this. And then you'd have another guy who'd be like, opine about some big issue. Yeah. You were you were this the was, fun writer. This was numbers and funny quotes yeah. and wacky stuff yeah. that happened. and. Um, my mom used to always say to me, I never knew baseball players were funny till I would read them talking, saying funny stuff. That's a great compliment. <laughs> That's a great compliment, I think. I, I took it that way. Yeah. And I've always gravitated toward the funniest guys in the locker room, right? So they knew I, what I, why I was there, and I knew why I was going there, right? And so I did that for a while, yeah. and then I got hired by ESPN in 2000. Mm-hmm. I was the, it's hard to believe Jonah, but all right, that's, that's 2000, yeah. and I was the first full-time baseball writer at ESPN.com. The whole site was done freelance before that. Yeah, it was like Rob Nyer and stuff. Yeah, and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of newspaper Sean types. McAdam types and whatever. Uh, Bob Clappish. Bob Clappish. Uh, Brookover. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of great people. You do, yeah, yeah, of course. But the, they didn't have a full-time baseball writer. This wow. is the year 2000. Yeah, when was ESPN.go.com? ESPN <laughs> Sports Zone. It was the ESPN. 93, 94 is when ESPN it was. ESPN Sports Zone. Yeah. Uh, it was Star Wave. Or God, I love ESPN right? Sports. When I was in college, I was just like, <gasps> what is this? <laughs> I had scores on my computer? Are you kidding me? Yeah, what a world. Other people are excited about other things on their computer. I'm excited about the baseball scores because I'm that kind of guy. Exactly. Wow. So, um, well, b- before we jump to the ESPN thing, you talked about the funny players. Um, Give me a couple of your favorites that were really. I mean, Jim Deshays. Oh yeah. Right? Um, even now. Even now, the, the greatest. I mean, nobody ever would have suspected at the time that Jim Deshays would go on to be the 
the broadcast legend that he is, mm -hmm. but I just knew he was a really hilarious man. Smart. And right. And one, among the things that I loved about him was he couldn't hit. And he <laughs> that was very amusing. And his buddy Larry Anderson claimed he could hit but really couldn't hit. Yeah. And those two guys would go back and forth. And so I actually did a computer world series. A team of all Larry Anderson, <laughs> a team of all Jim DeShazes. And there wasn't a lot of offense in this, but, you know, I would, I, we'd do it once a week. There'd be one game every week, and then the two of them would trash talk back and forth, Amazing. and it was hilarious. <laughs> and so this was, this was 93. And so yeah. later that year, uh, Jim DeShazes, perhaps you remember this, gets traded to the Giants as they're going down the stretch because they, they were running out of pitchers. They mm -hmm. needed somebody to pitch on the road the Solomon to Solomon Torres here. The Solomon Torres year. Mm -hmm. I think he came in at the same time, right? So I actually, you know, either the Giants or the Braves were going to play the Phillies in the postseason, so I was with the Giants. Yep. And Jim Deshays gets traded to the Giants, walks into the locker room of the San Francisco Giants for the first time, goes to his locker, looks around, there's a huge throng of, of San Francisco media, plus me, and Jim Deshays, I want you to know, had somehow or other won the Jim Deshays Larry Anderson. <laughs> you know, this is the guy. This is the only guy in history who never had an extra base hit in like 400 play appearances. Wow! So that was his claim to fame. But anyway, he, he pulls into his locker. He looks around at the San Francisco media. He looks at me and he says, "What did I win?" <laughs> and everybody's going, "Wait, what?" <laughs> but I knew it was about. They're great Titanic fictional World Series. I have a Jim Shea story for you. Yeah, I can't wait. And of course, every story revolves around the same team and the same player. Uh, this is a little later in Reigns' career, wasn't it? Because Deshays broke in like the mid-80s, maybe. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's 87, 8 or whatever. So on the scoreboard in Olympic Stadium, whenever a runner was on base, that was an expo, if the pitcher threw over... Uh, the chickens know all about this. So, right, so you know. <laughs> so, uh, there would be, it's like, and it wasn't high tech, it was like these low tech cardboard kind of chickens. chickens. And, and it was a dome, and so the, the clucking would echo throughout the state. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm a kid, so I love that. I'm 13, 14. And, um, you know, I don't know if the pitchers found it that hilarious. <laughs> Reigns loved it. Deshays loved it. So Deshays decides that he's going to set the record. He's, right. I don't know who he asked, but he said, what's the record? Someone says, like, 12. He goes, cool. Throws it over to first. And, I mean, people are booing and booing. Bok, 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 bok. And I think he got the 13 chickens. He did? Yeah. Oh, I wrote about that. Oh, did you? Oh, of course. He said, you want to put some chickens on the scoreboard? I'm going to give you some chickens. <laughs> and, yep, here's the thing, too. is like the low-tech animated chickens. Yes. That they would put up there in that scoreboard. Now you're up to like 10, 12, 13 chickens. There's nowhere to put them. So they were hanging them upside down. <laughs> yes. it was right, it was the best. It was the most hilarious scoreboard feature in the history of sports. I There's something about that stadium that was so goofy in the atmosphere. It was just, you know, you could be negative about it. You could say it felt minor league ish, or you could just say, oh, it was fun. You know, I think you and I both like fun, so I just appreciated it. And of course, that's all I grew up with. I didn't go to venerable Yankee Stadium, I went to this stadium. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it really resonated in that way. Yeah, I love guys like that. I mean, I, I, I had a whole stable of, of and, like, Andy Vance likes. Oh, God, everybody Andy, loved Andy. Right, Andy got traded to Philadelphia. Yeah, right? later. In 95. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> it was a crazy game that Greg Jeffries became the first Philly to hit for the cycle in the 20th century. Wow. And... 
I mean, a lot of stuff happened in this game, but that was one of them. Mm. And his wife was in the stands watching him hit for the cycle and went into labor. <gasps> right? Should have gone over the cobblestones. <laughs> right. And so he got the cycle by the fifth inning and was out of the game and went, went to the hospital with his wife. And so went downstairs afterwards. No Greg Jeffries. By the and, fifth and inning. And we walk in the clubhouse door. Yeah. Andy is standing at the door waiting for me. <laughs> he says, he did it so fast, he could have had the bicycle. <laughs> he said his, his, his cycle was 15 minutes apart, his wife was apart. It's like he just started spitting out these lines. That's so good. He must have spent the whole game thinking of them for me, oh, but that's, that's you can't funny. beat that, can you? No, people love that. You, you ever heard of Don Carmen? You remember the great yeah, pitcher, Don right Carmen? Pitcher, right-hander. Yeah. Left-handed pitcher. Right? Left-hander, yeah. In the Phillies. And he was another guy, got attracted to because he was 80s. hilarious. Late 80s, couldn't hit. Yeah. Started his career by going yeah. 0 for 47. Oh, God. Uh, finally got a hit, a little dribbler up the middle, got to second base, and then got picked off second base. And <laughs> said, I've never been to second base. <laughs> but he, he, one of his great things was Sorry. he assembled a list of baseball cliches. I think he had like 40, 50 baseball cliches, mm-hmm. the, the legendary baseball cliches, and he decided these were so good that rather than force all the players to sit around and talk to us after the game, he was just going to circle the ones that applied and then hand them out as we came in the clubhouse. <laughs> so good. Just, so good. Yeah, just great great clubhouse minds. These are the guys that I love to write about. So the early days of ESPN 2000, you're breaking in, you're the first writer. Uh, what's that like at that point? I mean, did you feel that it was very different to write on the internet? Did you find the culture to be different? I mean, that's there aren't that many uh, that can claim that kind of, you know, like the Eric Carabels. There's a few that have been around for a long time, but right. gosh, yeah. So what what was the landscape like then? Well, I, I mean, the the biggest change, and again, this seems ridiculous to think back mm-hmm. now, but newspapers back then mm-hmm. were still a tomorrow morning yes. world. You know, everything was what was going to go in the newspaper tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and ESPN and ESPN.com were in this world, yes. the 24-7 world. And you know, one of the biggest things I ran into was the, the newspaper scribes weren't sure what to make of me and guys like Scott Miller. We were the, probably the two, Miller, sure. the two first prominent national writers who covered baseball for the internet. Yeah. And so, you know, we would, like, after we left newspapers, we were, we were no longer eligible to be part of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Wow. For instance. Yeah. And Scott and I would go to these meetings and try to make our case, and... And Murray Schatz would get in a fight with you. It wasn't, no, it wasn't so much about Murray. Yeah. It was about a whole group of, it was about culture. Yeah, right, of course. You know, and, like, they... Like they would complain that all right, we would all sit around and talk to the manager, and then Scott and I could write it up and put it on our sites right away. They didn't, they didn't <laughs> and like that. They weren't doing that. They had sites, they had websites. Just it wasn't the mentality no. of the industry to do that. They had to protect their information from five in the afternoon until six the next morning. Yeah, and that you know it was an interesting dynamic mm-hmm. to find ourselves in the middle of um, colleagues, we, people that you've you know come up in the business. Right. With. I mean, it was nothing personal. Yeah, right, right. It was just the, we were a threat to them. Hmm. The internet 
was and is a huge threat to the newspaper industry. Yeah. And, I mean, Scott and I would both get involved in these conversations and try to make the point, this really isn't about us. This is about your newspaper. This is about your industry. And this is about the way the world is evolving. It's time for newspapers to evolve that way. Mm. And it's, it just was so dramatic that we could see it coming before it ever happened because we got caught in the middle of it. There are some newspapers that are not fully integrated now. Or not as well as they should be, or whatever. That, look, that's the biggest challenge of the newspaper yeah, industry. Yeah. Right? How are you going to monetize the fact that many people go to your site every day? Mm-hmm. And there was a big Time Magazine cover story uh, a few years back that made the point. The newspaper industry is not dying because more people actually read newspapers than have ever read them at any point in the history of humanity. Yep. They just don't pay for it. Yep. And that is the challenge. I guess that's a fundamental challenge with content in general, whether it's sports or otherwise, is just figuring that out. And, and uh, you know, the industry pivots and it becomes, you have to, have to figure out where that's going to go. Um, I wanted to ask you also, like, this is a sideline, so we'll get back to the main conversation, but I also wanted to ask you if you had a favorite game that stood out. If there was one that was in the ESPN era, if there was one that was before, where it was. Maybe it was the World Series clinching game. Maybe it was a ridiculous game like the uh, Jeffries game. But if there's one that you say, oh, yeah, you know, when I'm telling stories to my great-grandkids, I'll remember this one because it, was, it could be a great game or it was a funny game. You know, you, you, you'd probably like me to <clears throat> tell you a story about a game that nobody remembers. But was it, it can be, or it could be Mitch Williams. It was an absolute it. classic. Yeah. And um, this goes back, actually, to 1981. Wow. It was the final Strike game before the strike. Yeah. And right, what was happening back then? Pete Rose was closing in on Stan Musial's all-time National League hits record. Oh, wow. There's one game left before the strike. Pete is one hit away. Wow. Okay? And Stan Musial's in the stands. Right? So right there in the front row. The place is packed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Pete Rose against Nolan Ryan. Wow. Alright? Yeah. So, first at bat, first inning, Pete rips a single up the middle, ties the record, gets to first base, balloons are flying, crowd <laughs> roaring, stand usual, clapping, and Nolan Ryan, steam coming out of his ears. Of course. <laughs> right? So, I know this is going. the next three times up, Nolan punches out Pete Rose three straight at bats. Okay? And Nolan is just dealing, yeah. dominating. Yeah. And it's Nolan Ryan at his absolute greatest, where even Pete Rose couldn't touch him, couldn't make contact. Right? And so now we're getting down to the end of this game. It's the bottom of the eighth. Uh, let me think if I remember this. George Vukovic comes up to pinch hit mm-hmm. for Steve Carlton and hits a single back through the middle. And Nolan tries to make this kind of crazy move to catch it yeah. and hurts his back and has to leave. And uh, the Astros, if I remember right, are leading 4 nothing at the time. Yeah. No one has to leave the game. Pete's on deck, right? They bring the bullpen in. Yeah. Pete's just, I think Pete's just made an out in the end. I just made an out. Okay, and then George Wukic does this thing. Yeah. So, uh, the next thing you know, the Phillies score five runs, whatever it was, to take the lead so fast that 
on the Astros' bullpen that now we're heading to the top of the ninth. Pete's on deck. He never gets to hit. The strike is going to happen. <laughs> we go to, the, we go to the, the ninth inning starts. The Phillies are winning the game. It should be the greatest scene ever, sure. right? Instead, people are rooting for the Astros to come back <laughs> and tie the game so Pete can get to hit again. It was nuts. It was a, just an absolute crazy classic game that still gets replayed here every once in a while. Wow. The lore is just, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. So, you've been a baseball writer for so long, and uh, it's a great profession. It's a great vocation. Great. You're obviously passionate about it. Um, but it's a big world. You're a smart guy. You have lots of interests, <laughs> you know. Uh, if you could snap your finger one day, sometime, who knows, in the future, whatever, try something else. Is there something that would come to mind like, oh, yeah, I wonder what it would be like to do X. Wow. Well, you know, I, I have a lot of interests. Yeah. Um, and the, the way I'm looking at life now is yeah. I, I'm open to doing anything and everything. Mm. You know, I, as you said, I'm really passionate about being a baseball writer. Yeah. And I, I love that, and I love all the great stuff I've gotten to do. I do have a, just a ton of people interested in having me continue to do it. Yeah. And so all that's exciting. But I also have a chance now to, to reflect and, and think about what's next. And I, I mean, I don't know that I have a great answer for you. We, yeah. Like, my wife and I have been kidding that it's time for me to write a screenplay or something. Sure. Not that I would have any idea how to do that. But I have, I have seen movies. In my life, no. I'm familiar with the movie thing. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you, you're still talking about my award-winning appearance in Million Dollar Arm, aren't you? That's right. I, that was. The, um, I'm trying to best say best supporting non-actor in a non-speaking role. I nailed that. I, I, I it's a, neck and neck between that and me and Kirkton <laughs> pretending to be drunk at a, at a bar in Brockmire. Yeah, you know what? Can I can I bring that up by the Please way? Please do. I mean, I, Timmy's one of my best friends in the world. Couldn't Would you describe person. him as a heavy drinker? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and well, the best part of that scene was, you know, we ended up talking about musical theater, which is a preposterous term. <laughs> right. but who knows how that happened? And he means, he means to say yentl, and he says lentil. <laughs> and that's what ended up on screen. They just rolled with it. And, the, and you could, like, the general idea was it's funny because they're all around a bar and he's probably had too many. Right. So the preposterousness of it, like... Timmy, who still runs pick and rolls in the park and, like, you know, yeah. cares a lot. Yeah. He's not having 17 scotches with these dudes with Joe Buck. That's probably not going to happen. Yeah, that's what we were, we were kind of laughing the other day yeah. about how Timmy was miscast in this movie, even though he was playing himself. <laughs> it's true. It's Timmy, true. Was, Timmy was miscast in this show, show even yeah. though he was playing himself. Yes, and, and movies do take higher priority, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say that yours still trumps it. But anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. The so I'm thinking, thing, yeah. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't know that that will ever happen, but I mean, it, it's a cool thing to dream about. Yeah. As I said, I, you know, I'm completely open-minded now mm -hmm. to whatever way the world might spin. And that's kind of a, f I mean, it, I don't think of how I say this. Yeah. And that's kind of an exciting thing to think about, mm -hmm. is that I don't really know with 100% accuracy where the world might spin. Yeah. Um, 
I know I'm going to be fine. I know I'm going to do something really cool and really great and really stimulating on the other end. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't tell you where. So if you've got suggestions for me, Jonah, for things I might want to do, um, you know, I love hoops. Maybe I can find some college oh, yeah. hoops story be... to tell. Could I don't know. Could be travel. I could I could travel the world, uh, following some team around in some whole other sport. Yeah, I don't know. I like it. As, as somebody who just like cannot get enough of new experiences, yeah. I am excited about this possibility. Right. I'm not going to go back and cover any zoning boards. You're not going back to Rhode Island? I might go to Rhode Island, but I'm not going to cover any zoning boards. No. I promise you that. You, you, no. You would go have some Italian food on the hill in Providence. That's the proper thing. That's, a, that's an excellent idea. That is. We should do that right now. Yeah. Um, one last question, which I do at the end of every podcast, is I always ask the guest for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom, something that's very much them. Uh, you know, what is, do you have a guiding principle in your life? Do you have a thing that's like, oh, you know, this... In moments of uncertainty, this is my thing. This is my Jason thing. It doesn't um, have to be serious, by the way. It can be goofy. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm, I'm an extremely positive person. Mm -hmm. And I am determined to always be. And um, maybe this is easy for me to say because I've always gotten to do something that I love. But I, I, because I have, uh, it... I know I understand the importance of doing something with your life that you love, that you feel great about, that um, it may be your job, but it doesn't feel like work to you. Mm -hmm. And when when you're lucky enough to live that life, um, I think you can sweep up all the people around you in your path because if they see how much you're enjoying what you do, and how you live, yeah. and the people you're living with, um, it rubs off on them. Um, so that that's my thing. Uh, my, my beer mug is always half full, and it's always going to be. As a fan of optimism, I like it very much. <laughs> Thank you, Jason Stark. Generally, it's always, Jody, it's always fun to hang out with you. Thanks for letting me tell all my beauty stories. That's good. We're going to compare acting notes again in the future. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>